when you find yourself in a difficult season of life, it is hard to see big picture, right? Whether it is financial stress and you're trying to dig out of debt or maybe one of your children is born with a significant disease, handicap of some kind, or your marriage is struggling. You're just, your marriage is struggling at different seasons throughout your life, and you don't know if you could trust that to someone. You want to talk to somebody about it, but you are kind of afraid that they will think less of you if your marriage is struggling. Or maybe your spouse has been diagnosed with dementia or MS or cancer or just a hundred other ways in which this brokenness of this world, the suffering, it is so hard to see beyond this moment, right? To, to see beyond the moment and, and, and what Paul calls a light momentary affliction in 2 Corinthians 4 feels anything but light, feels anything but momentary. To believe that somehow God is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison in the midst of our suffering, that that's what he's doing. It's just hard to believe that. It's hard to sense that. It's, you know, life is really broken, and, and suffering and sorrow is very real. That's what, but Jesus promises the disciples in verse 20 that though sorrow is real, it's only for a little while. You are, he says to the disciples, you're about to experience deep, difficult, life-changing sorrow, but your sorrow is going to turn to gladness. It's going to turn to joy. It's not going to feel like it at first. It's not going to feel like it in a little while, but it's going to happen. I promise, he says. The disciples of Jesus have tasted some opposition up to this point, and they've certainly tasted the brokenness of this world. Um, but Jesus, for the most part, the last three years, has taken the brunt of any worldly opposition that they have experienced. The disciples live in this brokenness and suffering is unavoidable and they know that. But now on top of that, they're being promised by their own Savior that they're going to suffer persecution. Some of them might even die, he says. So he wants to assure them that following him is worth it. Maybe you need that this morning. Maybe you need to know that following Jesus in the midst of a season that is inexplicably difficult is worth it. Yeah, yeah, we need to know that. We probably need to be reminded in the different places where we are this morning, we probably need to be reminded that Jesus is worth it. Is he worthy? He is. Is he worthy? He is. So from verses 16 through 33, if you just, in your mind for a moment, uh, look at the paragraph that begins verse, chapter 16, verse 16, which Vince just read for us, and then all the way through verse 33, and just kind of get in your mind that, that section of Scripture. There's a movement from verse 16 all the way through to verse 33 that goes like this. 
from sorrow to gladness, from fear to certainty. From verse 16 to 33, it's anguish to happiness, from death to life. There's this recurring movement throughout the whole passage from the brokenness to the new and whole and flourishing that God is is at work doing. And and guess what's in between all of that movement? Guess what's centered? Just take a, a wild guess at what is centered right in the midst of that movement from sorrow to gladness, from death to life. What's right in the midst of it? The cross of Christ. So this morning, I want you to think about uh, three things with me. The sorrow, the cross, and then sorrow and suffering, the cross of Christ, and then the joy, peace, and triumph to come. Let's start with the sorrow and suffering element. And I want to talk first about sorrow and suffering and how it's unavoidable on this side of Eden. And then we'll think about the sorrow coming to Jesus and his disciples. So let's just back out for a second and think a little bit more holistically about the Bible and the big picture and the worldview of Scripture that we get from uh, the worldview we get from the Bible. Sorrow and suffering are a universal thing in a fallen world. Sorrow and suffering touch everyone in a fallen world. That's the way it is. Words like sorrow and weeping and lament and anguish and tribulation run throughout this passage, and and it's not the way it's supposed to be. So we acknowledge, and the Bible acknowledges, that the sorrowing and suffering and anguish and brokenness of this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Ever since Satan deceived Adam and Eve, the world has been a ruined and corrupted place. By the end of this worship hour, in 60 minutes, more than five children will die from abuse or violence. That's a staggering thought. They will die in direct connection to abuse or violence in the next 60 minutes. A staggering staggering number of people will experience all over the world hatred and persecution. You might not feel that in here this morning, but all over the world in the next 60 minutes, a staggering number of people will experience hatred and persecution due to racism. Not just in America, but all over the world. Suffering is everywhere. Suffering is everywhere. It's a universal aspect of the brokenness of this world that touches everyone. This past Monday, as Alan prayed, a 48-year-old man, Thomas Orr, lost his life for no good reason. I don't know that he had time to blink if you've seen the pictures of the accident. It was horrific. Probably he died instantly. And he was minding his own business at a stoplight in Roanoke, Virginia. Shakespeare described it brilliantly in Macbeth. Each new morn, each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry. New sorrows strike heaven on the face. Yeah. 
the author Ernest Becker, an anthropologist and sociologist who won the Pulitzer back in the 70s, in his book, The Denial of Death, he's got this great line. He says, he's describing the condition of humanity, and he says, uh, the condition of humanity is characterized by a rumble of panic underneath everything. A rumble of panic that tries to escape the reality of misery and the random suffering that appears in this world and the restlessness of that that denies reality. But there's no escaping the reality of this suffering. There's no escaping the reality of this. No matter how much you medicate, no matter how much you drink, no matter how much you pursue other things that become idols in your heart, there's no escaping the reality of suffering and estrangement, and brokenness. There is a rumble of panic underneath everything. What a way to describe the human condition. No one is immune to this. Now, what kind of sorrow, exactly what kind of sorrow and suffering is coming to Jesus and the disciples? What's, what's Jesus talking about? Look again at verse 16 with me. It says, a little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. What do you think Jesus is talking about? It was not clear to the disciples. In a little while, you'll see me no longer. So sometime in the near future, you'll see me no longer. And then... There'll be some gap between there, and then you will see me again. What's he talking about? Whatever it is, verse 20 says it's going to cause weeping and lament and sorrow, and the world will rejoice in it. Verse 32 says, uh, whatever it is that Jesus is talking about here, he, he says in verse 32 that there will be separation. The disciples will be separated from Jesus and they'll be separated from one another. What do you think he's talking about? He's talking about the cross. In a little while, 18 hours or so from now, in a little while, in a little while, so here they are right now, in a little while you will see me no more. And then in a little while, you will see me again. <laughs> Resurrection. In a little while, you'll see me on the cross. And then in a little while, you will see me again. He's talking about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Not far from now. Look at verse 25. Um, and look at verse 32. Look at verse 25 and verse 32 and see if you can find a common phrase. We've talked about it before in our study of the Gospel of John. See if you can find a phrase that matches. Uh, okay, so it's word search time. Get out your pencil and it's word search time. Verse 25 and verse 32. See if you can find the exact same wording in both verses. The hour is coming. You see it? The hour is coming. In John's gospel, when he talks about the impending hour, when he says the hour is coming, he's talking about his death. 
He's talking about the cross. He's saying the hour, in a little while, there's an hour coming. In a little while, you will see me and then no longer. And then in a little while, you'll see me again. In a little while, you'll see me no longer. You you and I are going to be separated. But we will be put back together. We'll come back together. In a little while, there'll be a reunion. Jesus is telling them why he came into the world and for what purpose he came. The Son of Man must suffer over and over again in the Gospels. The writers of the Gospels say that that Jesus spoke these words. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected and killed, and rise again. That's what the Son of Man must come to do. Suffering is coming Jesus' way. Suffering is coming Jesus' way, and therefore to the disciples also, both in the form of sadness at being separated from their Savior, and in the form of persecution, which he has basically promised them not to be surprised is going to happen to them. But God is going to do something through the suffering of Christ, listen to this, that's never been done before in any human suffering. God's going to do something through the cross of Christ that's never been done before through any form of human suffering. He's going to effect a great reversal of the power of sin and suffering as far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. The great reversal is going to begin. And what Jesus is talking about is not just suffering that they're going to experience. What Jesus is talking about is how there's this great reversal that's going to come. There's this great remaking of the world that's going to begin through his own work and ministry on the cross. Why did Jesus even come into the world? Why did Jesus come into the world to begin with? He came to make all things right. I hope you believe that. Jesus came to make all things right. He came to bring an end to all pain and sorrow and suffering. Now, look at verse 28, and notice how verse 28 describes the big picture of the life of Jesus Christ. It's as if Jesus backs out for a moment in verse 28 to help them really see big picture what is happening. He says, I came from the Father. You know what? Let me tell it to you like this, he says. Back out for just a minute. I came from the Father. Before, uh, before time, I had this relationship with the Father. The Father sent me. I came from the Father, and I have come into the world. He's talking about the incarnation. Verse 28 is about the incarnation. Verse 28 is a summary of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Verse 28 is a summary of the work of Christ. Verse 28 is a summary of who he is and what he came to be. Uh, I, I came from the Father, and I came into the world. He's talking incarnation. Now I'm leaving the world, and I'm going back to the Father. He's talking ascension. He's talking big picture, beginning and end. I came, and then I'm going to leave and go back to the Father. Now, what happens in between those two moments, big moments? What happens between those two moments? The cross of Christ happens. Jesus is filling in the blanks all around verse 28. He's filling in the blanks all over the place. He's saying, I came from the Father. I have come for this express purpose to reverse the curse, to change things, to, to bring an end to all suffering, and then I'm going to return to the Father, and I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm to enact and effect a new beautiful, uh, a new heaven and a new earth. Heaven's going to come down to earth. We're talking about heaven and, and the new heavens and the new earth on Wednesday nights. would love for you to join us in that if you're interested in that study. The cross is the place where God turns sorrow to hope. 
where he turns suffering to gladness, where he turns death into life. Let me show you the clearest mention of the cross in this, in this passage. I think it's even clearer in verse 32. Verse 32, look at this. Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed it has come. Like, it's right around the corner. It's just, it's maybe a day and a half away at this point. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. I will be alone in a little while. What's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. You'll be scattered, I will be alone. Jesus is going to soon need to remember his own words right here, that the Father will not forsake him because this dark hour is coming, a dark hour when loneliness and darkness and separation will converge and the suffering servant will experience in fullness something that would never happen again in the history of the world. When the innocent one will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in his loneliness? Made sin on behalf of sinners. 2 Corinthians 5, that's why he cries out. He's being made sin on behalf of sinners. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And he will, he will, he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's experiencing the separation and estrangement from God that you and I should experience, but he shouldn't. He's come to make all that right. He, he had to do it this way. Why did he have to do it? Because there's no other way for the curse to be reversed. Suffering and pain and sorrow and disobedience and death are all bound up in the evil that was perpetrated in the garden. And God cannot simply wave his magic wand and bypass justice. God doesn't work that way. He doesn't bypass justice. The sons of Adam and daughters of Eve are hopeless to make this right. Only Jesus, the perfect Adam, could taste suffering and death for everyone. Only Jesus could perfect the human race. This is the argument of the book of Hebrews. Only Jesus, the Son of Man and the Son of God in one person could perfect the human race by enduring what he did, uh, by enduring what he did not deserve, bearing the full weight of pain, suffering, and even death so that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. Only Jesus can identify and sympathize with our weakness, our every weakness, being tempted in every aspect and yet without sin. Jesus had to, on your behalf, fully experience suffering and estrangement from God Martin Luther, Martin Luther, the great Protestant uh, reformer, he's my favorite pastor of the Reformation period. Uh, if you don't love Luther yet, it would be one of my goals in life to get you to love Martin Luther, just one of my small goals. Um, he was an amazing theologian and pastor and really lived a broken life. In the midst of the brokenness all around the, the world and in his life and the church and and Luther had eyes to see the brokenness. God gave him eyes to see the brokenness. So one of his favorite passages in Scripture, in fact, he calls it, the, the, these are the greatest words in the Bible. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
when he saw Christ crying out on his behalf on the cross. He thought, man, these are, the, these are the best words. These are the gospel words that I need. Those were his favorite, that was his favorite line, one of his favorite lines in the Bible. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For Luther, God forsakenness on the cross was the most important way in which Jesus identified with you and with me. God forsakenness on the cross was the most important way in which Jesus identified with us. He suffered the depths of God forsakenness in his human nature like no one else could ever imagine. And in Luther's words, he describes it like this. He says, in Christ, listen, in Christ, the God forsaken sinner, the God forsaken sinner has a savior who has taken on himself the full depths of estrangement from God and has overcome it. He has done what you cannot do to overcome suffering and brokenness. And so, you know, we, we preach a lot about how Jesus has the power to overcome death, and he does. He has the power to overcome death and hell and the devil, and he has. But he doesn't just have the power to overcome death. Luther says in this God-forsaken language, this theology of the cross that he's building, he says he didn't just overcome death. He's overcome suffering and sorrow and every struggle and difficulty you are in the midst of. You look to Christ because he's overcome that. And he's your only hope. He is your only hope. Through his overcoming triumph on the cross, he brings to us lasting joy and peace and triumph. That's the third point. Joy, joy, peace, and triumph. Lasting joy, inexplicable peace, and ultimate triumph. Those things are promised to the disciples throughout this passage. They're promised to us. But in the moment of anguish, in the moment of frustration, in the moment of the brokenness, in the midst of the darkness, it is almost impossible to see your way out. That's the point of Jesus' analogy in verse 21. So there's this great analogy in verse 21. It's the analogy, of, it's, it's the anguish of childbirth. Jesus says... Think, you know, think with me for a moment about the anguish of childbirth. This will help you understand what I'm talking about. And he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. She has sorrow and she has anguish and she has pain and she has difficulty. And, and there's, there's nothing else in life like this that you can be sure is coming. Think about that. I mean, this is part of family life. There's only one thing in family life you can be sure is going to have this level of anguish and pain and suffering, and it's coming. Sorrow is, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. She's afraid. She doesn't know what's going to happen to her body, her, her baby. She doesn't know. She, she does know the stories of childbirth. She's heard those from her mother and her grandmother. She, doesn't, she just doesn't know. There's fear. Uh, there's anguish. There's pain, real, real live pain. 
uncertainty, fear of survival. What about the health of this child? I mean, guys, it's only been in recent years that ultrasounds are down to the micrometer. I mean, we... The history of the world is filled up with people who had no idea what was going to happen to them at the moment of delivery. Mothers and babies... Jesus is tapping this sort of primal analogy to say, look, you should, I want you to know something. The depth of the anguish that a woman feels who's about to birth a child, she feels like she's going to die. But whoa, on the other side of that moment, it's this little precious life that's placed up on her chest. And she's like, oh, it was so worth it. She forgets the pain. She's willing to have another one. That's crazy. What, why is that? Why is that? Because, the text even says, of the joy, look what it says, that comes when a human being is brought into the world. Oh, this is just laden with, uh, with, with what God is trying, what, what, this is just laden with the hope of life, the hope of the gospel, the hope of human flourishing. Jesus is talking about something here. He's talking about something he's about to go do. He's going to experience anguish, death, and life's going to come out of it. The disciples are going to experience anguish and suffering, and life is going to come out of it. Amazing. Blowing people away. Like Think back to, the time, think back to when you first saw that newborn baby that your wife brought into this world, or your grandchild that God gifted you with, this precious little thing. Jesus is saying, I promise you this. What I'm telling you is going to happen. There's going to be anguish. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be brokenness. Let me pick you. Go back to verse 25, and let me try to tie this together. Look, I have said these things to you in figures of speech, like in the analogy of the woman birthing a child. I said it to you in an analogy in a figure of speech. But the hour is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figures of speech. I'm going to tell you plainly. And they're like, phew, finally, thank you. Tell us what you're talking about, right? Uh, In that day, you're going to ask Verse 26, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. There's coming a day when you won't have to ask in my name in the same way that you are right now, because I'm going to give you access to the Father in the midst of this. And the Father himself loves you, verse 27. I'm making it possible Check this out. I'm making it possible that you can look to me as your intercessor, but not just me as intercessor. I'm actually opening the door for you to come into a relationship with the Father. You can know the Father. That's going to happen on the cross. That's the high priestly ministry of Jesus. For the Father loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and I've come into the world. Now I'm leaving the world and I'm going back to the Father. And right in the midst of that is the cross. His disciples said, oh, aha, finally we understand what you're saying. You're not using figurative language. Now we know that you know all things and don't need anybody to question you. This is why we believe that you are the Son of God. You came from God. Verse 31. (laughs) This is so good. Jesus said, do you now believe? He's going to throw a little double check on him here. Do you now believe? Because the hour is coming 
And indeed it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you'll leave me alone, and yet I will not be alone. I will cry out in loneliness, but I will not be alone. I will experience God-forsakenness, but I will not be alone because I am hoping in the Father. The power, the love, the amazing glory of God, will, I will rise again. I've said these things to you, verse 33. that in me you will have peace. There is some anguish and some suffering coming. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. It's not going to be an easy place to live. But take heart. I have overcome the world. The triumph of Jesus Christ on your behalf as a disciple of Jesus If you're going to memorize a verse of Scripture this week, you should memorize verse 33. I'm not speaking ex cathedra as the Pope. I'm just trying to help. I'm just trying to help you. That's not, I'm not legislating this. I'm just saying, hey, if you're going to choose a verse, man, I want to encourage, I'm, I'm making a case for verse 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. It's coming. Stop, Pete. Stop being surprised when the challenges and the anguish and the difficulty and the suffering come. But take heart. I have overcome the world. What's he talking about? He's talking about the the power of the cross. He's talking about the amazing power of the gospel that is going to be unleashed in just a few hours in his life. And it's not just going to affect salvation on a personal basis. It's going to affect cosmic, earthly, heavenly renewal that's going to reverberate throughout all the ages. It's going to be amazing. Take heart. I have overcome the world. We're going to close um, by singing this great song that's inspired by Fanny Crosby, a redo, a, a remix. We call it a remix. Um, Give me Jesus. So while our, while our instrumentalists are, are coming, let me just remind you of who Fanny Crosby was. How, how Fanny Crosby was, she was, so she was born... Um, with some serious illness, but she wasn't born blind. And through the medical treatments that she was supposed to be receiving to help her, she was blinded through those very medical treatments. It's kind of a tragic story. But she knew so so she knew a little something about living in a broken world she she was blind from the time she was 6 weeks old her father died within that year and her grandmother raised her because her mother worked all the time she knew a little something about living in a broken world but listen to the poem she paid amazingly gifted child and, and, and listen to the, the gospel's already influencing her life. At age eight, she writes this little jingle, this little poem to remind herself about how powerful God is and, and her own growing faith at this point. She's eight years old. She writes this, oh, what a happy soul I am. What? Who writes these kind of things today? Nobody. We're the eight-year-olds, man. Let's praise God for eight-year-olds in whom God is at work. Here's what she says. 
eight years old. Oh, what a happy soul I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented I will be. Already the gospel's coming alive in her. She's got books of the Bible memorized. I'm told that she had the first five books of the Bible memorized, Proverbs, Psalms, and I think large portions of the Gospels. Blind, memorizing, braille script, taking the word of God into her life. So that she could live in a world just shot through with brokenness. She wrote so many great hymns. This is a remix of Give Me Jesus. Let me pray for us. We'll sing. Today, Jesus, we believe that you are enough. God is enough. Take this world and all of its suffering. But Lord, you are enough. Help us to believe that so deeply within who we are this morning that we could sing it before you with integrity. Help us to do that, we pray in Christ's name.